0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Teaching While White podcast. I'm Jenna Chandler Ward. And my guests today are John Diamond and Amanda Lewis. They've written a groundbreaking book called Despite the Best Intentions, How Racial Inequity Thrives in Good Schools. John Diamond is black and is a professor at Brown University. Amanda is white and she's a professor at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Despite Best Intentions, looks at a large suburban high school outside a major metropolitan city. It's affluent, liberal, and racially diverse. They call the school by a pseudonym Riverview. Diamond and Lewis describe Riverview as well-funded, the teachers as well-trained, and there are many high-achieving students. White families, in fact, move to the district because Riverview is so racially diverse and well-funded, and that is somewhat of a rare combination. Yet the so-called racial achievement gap at Riverview is striking. Black and Latino students consistently underperform academically as compared to their white and Asian peers. Together, Lewis and Diamond uncover some of the ways this well-intentioned school actually perpetuates the achievement gap and how the collective power of white parents contributes to the problem. Despite the best intentions was essential to the research for our own recently released book, Learning and Teaching While White. And their work is some of the most eye-opening reading I have ever done on race and education. When I spoke with John and Amanda, I started by asking Amanda to describe the community where Riverview School is located
1: some people would call it a suburb, some people would call it a small city adjacent to a large city. Um, It's one of those places that often ends up on those lists of best places to live. Um, Relative to a lot of other places, it's pretty diverse. Um, It's a very liberal community in a blue state. Um, It's a place where there are um, lots of Parks and restaurants and great schools there's just lots of resources. It's a place that uh lots of people move to, particularly because the schools are good and because they're diverse so in the larger metro area where it's located, there are lots of communities that have schools that score very high but that are a lot of them very white or definitely at least not diverse so this is a kind of unique community that a lot of people move to, particularly because of the combination of diversity and all the services and good schools and nice housing and all that kind of thing.
0: I want to talk about the collective power of white parents specifically. And I just want to start by saying all parents want to do what's right by their kids. So I think maybe you could speak to this. The parents you encountered, the white parents you encountered they think they're just doing what's best for their kids, right?
2: They may articulate that, but you know, it comes down to thinking about how do you define what's best, right? And I think in a lot of cases, what we've come to in this country more generally is what's best for everyone is what's best for me. <laughs> and so you know, what's best for their kids becomes what's best for my individual kid uh, or members of my group. Um, as opposed to thinking about what's best as, you know, what's best for the community, what's best for the the larger educational mission of what what's trying to be accomplished. Um, so people come to these diverse communities, um, but they're, you know, sort of close ranks around what's best for my individual kid uh, or kids like my individual kid, which tends to concentrate resources amongst white parents who tend to have both the sort of symbolic power of whiteness, as well as, um, in some cases, the economic and social capital to to sort of advocate for what they want to see.
0: There's a quote in there where, I think it was one of the teachers you interviewed, talks about white parents as if they are preparing for battle. That they're planning and optimizing for their children in kindergarten about how they're going to have the best outcomes in terms of college admittance, I, I assume. And extracurriculars and tutoring and all these things. And that just really struck a chord. Can you say more about what you saw around those kinds of preparing
1: for battle? Yeah, I think it's this way in which parents construct their job, sort of like Don was saying, as being optimizing their kids experience at every moment. So jockeying for the best teacher that they heard about in the elementary school or making sure that their kid is in, as we wrote about a lot in there, the best classes in the high school. And that's one of the things that was really interesting about talking to parents is they could both be simultaneously a little reflective about their constant um intervention to help their kid get the best of whatever and at the same time really disengaged from the consequences of their engagement. They never asked themselves like what's best for everybody. There was there was a really <laughs> disjuncture between their sense of commitment to a kind of larger community that they had moved for right that was one of the things that we really struck us in the interviews with white parents is they had moved to the community explicitly because it was diverse and um but were regularly willing to trade off a truly diverse experience for their kids for an advantaged one so they you know, proximate diversity was okay. It seemed like it was enough that, you know, they could, they could see that there were kids of color around. They didn't necessarily care if their kids had any friends that were um, of other races or where they were actually in class with them. Cause that wasn't in the end, the thing that turned out to be most important to them.
2: This whole thing about wanting to be in a diverse community, as Amanda was talking, I was thinking about, they want to, they want to control the nature of that diversity in the community and in a lot of ways they also actively resist any effort to create a real integrated community right so they're not only working for their own individual kid but they act collectively to resist changes that might make opportunity expand beyond their individual <laughs> kid or, or or the small group of folks who sort of they see as as their uh, as folks who look like them so that was the other piece of this coming to a community, but really working hard to control who lives where in the community, who gets access to what in the community and working hard to make policy change difficult was another characteristic of of white parents in, 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 in Riverview.
0: I wanna to get to that policy and the act of resistance, but I was just thinking, I was speaking to a white man who was part of a white anti-racist group for parents that I was running. And he said to me, yeah, we moved to Cambridge because it's such a diverse community, Um, but my daughter doesn't have a single Black friend. And I, granted, she's in all the honors classes, but there must be other places for her to interact with kids of color, like in the cafeteria or in study hall, I don't know, somewhere, as if with that total disconnect, right? It's like, I moved here for this community, but I'm not but my kid's going to be in all honors. And of course it makes sense that all my kids honors classes are all white.
1: (laughs) It's kind of mind boggling. Yeah. And it's one of those things that we dug in a lot on trying to understand what was the narrative that they had to explain this, right? So what does it mean to move into a diverse community and then, Notice because that's one of the things we really were curious about. do they know how segregated the school is internally, and sure enough, they really did and then the question was, well, how do they make sense of that? Do they understand it as being an issue of racial equity and um for the most part, they had a widely available set of racial stereotypes, racial mythology that they would just fall back on, and you know sometimes it felt like, well, I really can't worry about that too much, but a lot of it really was them either assuming that most of the Black and or Latino families were low income and just didn't value education in the same way they did, or, you know, they just, they just had some easy answers that helped explain it away in a way that made it not their responsibility at all um, and not something that they were necessarily going to worry about. But that was always juxtaposed with, you know, there's that kind of subtle passive part of it, But then the part John was just talking about where it ended up not being so passive when there was talk about changing the rules or changing the structures, that then then it got really activated in a different kind of way so that folks at the school just named these same families all the time as being the reason why change was hard. And
0: embedded in all those stereotypes, right, is that white students are inherently smarter
1: smarter, more invested, all that work that they were doing to intervene all the time. Maybe maybe some parents just weren't interested in doing that, maybe didn't align. You know, there's a lot of kind of old-fashioned racial stereotypes that have got kind of modestly updated. So they function as kind of cultural stereotypes now. So it's not so much maybe inherently, but maybe it's just about kind of cultural values, that sort of thing, that sort of end in the same place, which is the people who are um, not thriving here, are not thriving because of something that's their own fault.
0: There's a quote in the book that um, stopped me in my tracks. It says, yet these parents are not just passive recipients of an unjust system. According to many staff members, white parents have actively opposed and even undermined attempts to rethink the current tracking structure, and they continue to campaign against such change. It just really hit me, that passive recipients of an unjust system.
2: There is a, definitely a way that when efforts to make change uh, come forward or when there's a, a, a strong proposal to make change that's going to create a more equitable set of experiences for people, then the conversation about leaving the community becomes palpable, right? White parents start talking about, well, I'll just leave if you want to detract, The conversation, it's couched in sometimes rhetoric about it's best for kids to learn with classmates who have the same background, or, you know, it's going to be too much work for educators to be able to teach heterogeneously grouped classrooms, or we don't want the black and brown kids to struggle in these classes and, you know, sort of undermine what the goal of equity actually is, right? So there are all these ways that people sort of frame their resistance um in language that sounds flowery or <laughs> grounded in justice um but the reality is it tends to be an effort to sort of monopolize resources to what we talk about in terms of opportunity hoarding uh to sort of hoard educational opportunities um and to slow down the pace of change to the extent that they're you know by the time the change actually happens it's taken four or five years and their child is off in college somewhere Right. And so, yeah, we found that it really is um, the resistance and the expectation of resistance that makes change really hard.
1: John's exactly right. And I think one of the things that's interesting about it in all the conversations that we had in doing the analysis and writing the book was coming to understand this really tricky thing about how structural racism, white supremacy or Whatever you want to call it, works, which is that it produces racial inequity. And then it also explains it. One of the things that always puzzled us is how people could walk into this building where the hallways were so diverse, you know, or kids all all shades, whatever, hues walking around. And then you go into classrooms and they and it was completely different. And it was not 1954. And how do people explain that? And the ready availability, the kind of persistent power. Uh, racist ideas to sort of suggest implicitly often, perhaps subtly, but pervasively to everybody that this was how things should be in some ways, or it was at least, exp- uh, you know, understandable, was really powerful. And, you know, we even had some conversations sort of doing the mental exercise of just imagining the whole thing flipped on its head. And it wouldn't last a week if it was all the white kids in the, in their, regular remedial classes and all the black and brown kids in the AP and honors classes, we would immediately understand something was wrong with that situation. And so it's one of those things that is part of the reason why I think we're constantly pushing to kind of put this in a moment in the kind of historical arc and understand in some ways that we're learning about Riverview, about schools like Riverview, but that it's also part of this larger story about how racism and racial inequality works in a kind of broader sense and what's new about it and what in fact is not so new about it.
2: You know, if you think about it, that that whiteness becomes so powerful that the expectation uh, that whites will be the intellectually dominant group in a, in communities, um, you know, becomes normalized, right? But you see what's happening, for example, in California, in the Bay Area, and uh, where you see a lot of Asian students and white students in communities. Where Asian students are outperforming them, then it becomes, and Tomas Jimenez and others, Pop and Dingra and others talk about this that, you know, then it becomes the Asian students are becoming, you know, sort of hyper vigilant about education, right? And the families are overdoing it and they're, Academic bullying the white kids because they're outperforming them, right? And there's something abnormal about Asian student achievement in those contexts because of course the white students are the norm, and so if anybody underperforms, it's because of cultural deficiency. If anyone overperforms, it's because of this, you know, hyper vigilant academic bullying culture amongst Asians, right? The white kids are always okay. You know, and you can see it in higher education, you can see it in the complaints about what's happening in the UC system. I mean, it's it's really um, whiteness rationalizes its own dominance or lack of dominance in, in multiple ways, depending on the groups.
0: I find myself wanting to justify Well, it must not be conscious. And yet um, at my kid's school, the lower level class, the non-honors is called college prep CP and the students know it as colored people. So like the kids know, they're totally aware of that discrepancy you describe where there are no kids of color in the upper levels and no white kids in the lower levels. So it's There is some consciousness that's like threaded through all of this. And yet, we are, as white parents, I'll say for myself, there's like this persistent, willful cluelessness. I don't know. I don't know exactly how to capture it. But do you see this? I mean, we've described, you've described some of it, but this disconnect between thinking, well, that's just the way things are, or, or, and yet it's so in the face. Did you have any other, besides stereotypes, were there any other justifications for why they were seeing what they were seeing? And did you hear students describe it differently?
2: I think what you've touched on is, is really important. This, the whole idea of racial ignorance, uh, Charles Mills talks about, that ignorance is not necessarily ignorance, that ignorance is a constructed stance that allows people to look at the racial reality And sort of excuse it in a willful way. Nobody, you know, with a a functioning brain can look at the U.S. and not see the racial injustice in pretty much every aspect of life in the U.S. from birth rates and maternal death to life expectancy to every moment of, you know, living to everything one wants to do from going to school to um, going to college to buying a home to going to the hospital to being uh, going to a restaurant to checking into a hotel all those things are sort of racially unjust in practice from the minor things to the major things and racial ignorance allows white people to to see these things and and construct a sort of willful ignorance and to construct ideologies to 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 talk about it in ways that sort of rationalize it away. Um, but I think it's, it's a tool that people use um, a certain kind of avoidance of, of seeing and talking about the obvious. And the unfortunate thing is that a lot of times academics and all of our institutions <laughs> sort of support this by, you know, sort of constructing excuses uh, for people to, to sort of glom onto um, when they are talking about it in a conscious way. But I, I should let Amanda speak to it as well.
1: Yeah, the only thing I would add is you know one of the concepts we use in the book is this idea about racial apathy, because I think John is exactly right. Some of it is about what people see in the world, but it's kind of you know uh, strategic not seeing, right? A strategic engagement and not engagement. Um, but it's also that seeing is also a t- tied in some ways to a certain level of not caring and of disengaging from. Racial inequity in the world and in in our close, not just out there, far away, but close in, right in the context of a place like Riverview, and it's hard not to eventually trace that back to a kind of really fundamental differential valuing of um, black life in some way. You know, I mean, I think the the thing that is hard to avoid is that. If we really were invested, if we really embraced all young people's full humanity, if we really loved them fully and really, you know, there's lots of folks who've been talking about this recently with regard to thinking about a different kind of set of practices with the teaching. But if we did that collectively, it would be impossible to not want to take collective responsibility for the fact that a lot of our young people are not thriving in our schools. And again, not even in just those bad schools far away, but in, in the school that we're a part of, that's what in some ways is so painful about it, particularly for, um, I would say, Black families and for Black teachers in the school, is being in such close proximity to these people who, who seem like, you know, pretty intelligent and yet are either, it's not their problem, Don't care, or as someone was talking about earlier, are like actively getting in the way of things changing.
0: So let's talk about parents. White parents actively getting in the way. Tell me about some of the things you've encountered.
2: One thing is that, you know, having conversations uh, with district leaders, the highest level, superintendents and others. You know, one of the first things that uh, I would say is speaking with a new superintendent uh, in Riverview and having them say, and and, in Riverview and another district, having them say, Well, when I came to the district, I could see the racial disparity. And I was, you know, in some ways, uh, that was my first priority was to deal with the racial disparity. But I couldn't say that directly when I first got there because I knew what kind of resistance I would get from the community if I put race in the first position in my strategic plan. I knew I would get resistance from white parents in the community and I would get resistance from white educators in the schools if I prioritized that. And so what I did was and I'm speaking as 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 superintendent, what I did was did things that I thought would have the impact that was positive and work toward racial justice but didn't call it that, right? So even getting race on the table in the first place becomes really challenging, right? Even saying This district is about racial equity and racial justice is challenging. And that's challenging even before we get to the place where state legislatures are making it illegal to talk about these things, right? So the situation has gotten worse since the time we wrote this book in some states um, because of that sort of legislative effort. And the interesting piece of that is, and I, and I know I'm talking in a, in a broader sense, not just about parents, but most white voters tend to vote for the Republican Party, which has used these racial politics to uh, sort of maintain white power in explicit ways. And when we get back to the local context, we're still dealing with parents who are making decisions in the local context to resist getting race on the table and resist efforts to create more racial justice. We already talked about tracking and detracking and the resistance that comes to that. We see similar things around discipline policies where, you know, white parents see discipline to some extent as about protecting their white kids from black kids or Latinx kids in, in the school district or in the school context. And there are many other ways that it becomes sort of this active and subtle Uh, Strategies of of resistance.
1: It was interesting. When we first were finishing up the book, we gave a talk about um, some of the findings to a group of, I don't know, 30 some superintendents from districts all around the country. And um, all of them thought they were Riverview, and particularly around this pattern of of opportunity hoarding by white families, of the kind of strategic, constant resistance that they were dealing with to try to um, do equity focused work in their districts. And the patterns are similar. Like we've, since the book has come out, worked with lots of different um, school districts and the same kind of things come up. There's threats to leave the district. There's threats to have the superintendent fired. One of the districts we spoke to where they'd been doing some work, the superintendent talked about five organized campaigns to have them fired since they'd started doing this work. There's all the work about distraction and slowdown. As one of the administrators we spoke to they had talked about doing some really basic stuff about just kind of raising the floor, about increasing expectations across the board in some of the classes. And she'd had hundreds of meetings with different parents over the year. you know, so just taking up so much space that it's hard for people to move the agenda along because they're spending so much time dealing um, with resistance. And this is even for small changes. I mean, we were interacting with another district where they were talking about just changing how kids got assigned to classes so that parents couldn't use their social networks to kind of try to get their kid into the best class and and just creating a process for everyone. And even that, what seemed like a, a completely fair, transparent, universal process for everybody, you know, generated three or four, you know, kind of vigorous, hostile meetings. And so the the work, which is already hard, right? Because there's also, you know, all the work of, you know, getting teachers on board with changes, and you know, a whole set of things along that. All of that work gets really stopped in its tracks.
2: Yeah, and it's interesting too that, you know, it's not just people from outside the school. Another district that I've worked with um, to sort of restructure and create more diversity in the administrative ranks in the school, um, as well as in the teaching ranks. You know, as soon as they started hiring uh, more black and Latinx teachers, then there was a, you know, sort of a growing concern about the quality of principals they were hiring and the quality of teachers they were hiring. You know, the irony was that they created a much more rigorous process for vetting people on a much more lengthier hiring process. But because they were hiring more black administrators, because they were hiring more black teachers white educators in districts started to suggest that, you know, these were diversity hires and they were people who weren't qualified. Right. So it's not just parents and folks on the outside. It's, you know, the power of, you know, whiteness and identification with whiteness and shaping how people want to control even the teaching and administrative ranks. And in that same district, we had a a couple of administrators who were, you know, sort of faced a, a sort of all out attack from some of the teachers in the school that led to them losing their jobs in ways that again, you know, speak to the way that race really plays itself out in these in these contexts that purport to be sort of liberal bastions.
0: And all the hoarding, right, you know, from grade inflation to ensuring, you know, I don't know, tutoring, all those things. But but one that really stood out to me is in schools where there are bridge programs, and this happened at my kid's school, um, bridge programs that are meant to ensure that there are more black and brown kids in an honors class.
1: I mean, that's what we found at Riverview, that some of these programs had been created were now full of white students. It's actually one of these interesting findings. We actually looked at some of the research from public health programs where similar patterns were found, where initiatives that were intended to close um, gaps in outcomes, in the end, everybody benefited somewhat, but the gaps actually had gotten bigger over time because because white folks had figured out how to benefit more. And it's a it's an interesting dilemma, especially as John was saying, because schools often try to figure out how to design these programs in ways that aren't maybe explicitly about racial equity, but about increasing opportunity. I mean, anything anything that's remotely um vague in that way you know you have these very activated parents who are constantly looking for ways to give their kid a, a leg up and um, they will sign up early they will get the information into the social networks quickly and you know so these programs don't end up always having their intended effects
0: Do you think that individual white parents believe that they're just acting like that it's just them? They're just one person taking up some needed time with their administrator? Like, how do how do we start to explain the collective impact? It's not just you. There are lots of white parents taking up the principal's time when, when they need to be doing something completely different. I don't know.
2: I think it becomes, a you know, sort of a rationalization um, because you know, I think I think people have convinced themselves that it's just them. Um, but at the same time, what we see is not just wanting to control that moment of interaction, but also wanting to control the PTA. Um, I talked to um, a board member in Riverview who had been a very active parent and had worked at One of the in one of the PTAs when their child was in uh, elementary school and she at one point suggested that they should really try hard to recruit more parents of color for the PTA. And she said the backlash she got from that was really intense to the point where she lost friendships because she was trying to create a more diverse parent teacher association. Right. So it's individual efforts that one can easily rationalize as, well, you know, this is what's best for Billy or whatever. Um, But then there are also the sort of collective efforts that people engage in. And it goes back to what Amanda was saying before, even on things that seem relatively minor. Right. There's still this need to control processes at the very least. You know, even if they are including (laughs) were including more parents, they, they didn't want too many. Um, because they wanted to control the process and control the resources and control the influence.
1: I will say that one of the things that was really interesting for us is that the book came out right at the end of the Obama era, I would say. And we were still in that moment when the book came out of having to kind of argue with people that race mattered, right? So sometimes we would talk about it or you know, people were really pushing that we were in a kind of post-race moment. And after four years of um who's he, what's he, you know, one of the things that happened was that I will say not everybody, right. But that uh, there was a somewhat of a kind of reframing of some of these parents, again, not exactly the same parents, but we saw new organizing on behalf of white parents in communities, right. Like Riverview kind of, Pushing back against opportunity hoarding by their peers, joining with other families, families of colors in the district to support racial equity work in the district, and folks who I think thought, well, things are pretty good right now and had been pretty apathetic, realizing, oh man, if we need to do some work here. So, again, I think there has been a sort of ironic benefit to the growth of really a kind of old-fashioned and explicit kind of racism in the country in that I think folks who felt pretty comfortable and felt like this wasn't really their business and it wasn't really their job and, you know, that just moving to a place like Riverview was already enough of their, you know, kind of beneficence or whatever. Some of those folks realized that that actually was a pretty silly position to take and that they were being complicit. I think there's also been important writing by folks like Nicole Hannah-Jones who said very explicitly in some of the writing she did in the New York Times that got a lot of attention like you know that that white families who were doing this kind of work were complicit and, and um, I think there's been a kind of somewhat of a shift in folks beginning to acknowledge that in some places at some moments. <laughs>
2: Yeah and I think I think you're really right Amanda and I you know I I think for all of the people who actively resist for example there are as many people or many people who who see themselves as um actively working toward toward racial justice and that that is in some ways pushes me to think of a little bit more optimistically um just because you know hundreds of people coming out in, in communities to, to read about what we found and despite the best intention and, and have gatherings and meetings about what can be done, I you know was heartened by a, a group of educators from Wisconsin and community members from Wisconsin across 30, 33 districts in the state um, who came to book studies. Of despite the best intentions to um, think together about how they could could create a more racially just set of outcomes you know the the challenge is that those conversations don't always lead to the you know uh, the changes that we want to see um, but the fact that people are at least interested in having those conversations and see the work as needed um, and you know again I, I should should state that you know the folks who were coming to these sessions were largely white folks in wisconsin um there that that does give me some sense of 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 hope that um you know they will join with the black and latinx and asian parents who have been fighting this battle all along um, in ways that could create some possibilities for change
0: listened to our podcast or read our new book, you know that my collaborator, Elizabeth Genevi and I are really curious about how parents can be encouraged to care about the well-being of all kids and not just their kid. I asked Amanda about that.
1: Well, I think one of the points that that I've heard John make a number of times when we've been doing public engagements about these things, which I think is a really powerful one, is how do we shift our advocacy to not advocating for my kid, but advocating for a general set of policy changes, for instance. Um, I mean, we we talk about this in the book around the discipline work, that what happens in schools is often sort of what happens in the criminal justice system, where people with resources make sure that they don't have to face the consequences for whatever action they engaged in. So rather than saying parents saying Um, this rule should change because it's too punitive. It doesn't acknowledge developmental challenges kids have, whatever the case may be. So rather than advocating in a more collective way for rules to change or for policy to change, they often just say, well, don't apply this policy to my kid. And if they have enough resources, they can make that happen. So one of the things we've sort of pushed in different ways is not just regard to discipline, but with regard to placement of kids in classes and a whole wide range of ways. If you identify something that you think is in some ways unfair or doesn't work, what does it mean to shift your energy around that to not advocating individually for your child, but to advocating for the, the um, institution to function differently? And really, in some ways, be willing to show up. And one of the things we tell people all the time is any any equity focused change is going to be face resistance and it's really actually helpful to the district to the administrators to the people trying to make change to know to put some pressure on the other side right that we can't expect for hard things to happen without some sense that if it doesn't happen there you know there's going to be somebody to answer to so sort of creating that organizing platform of we are the folks who think that what is most important is that this district serves all children and ask the kinds of questions connected to that, to think much more in the, in the kind of vein of, of a collective and to think about what does it mean to advocate for everyone in that, in that kind of sense.
2: One of the things that happened to my son in a similar district was um, he came into the district and actually, you know, coming from Cambridge, where he attended a school that actually a school that a lot of white parents avoid, at least at the time I was there, but it had an outstanding program for um, kids on the on the autism spectrum. And we got to this new city, and he, within the first week of school, was a fourth grader in the first week or third grader in the first week of school. He came home saying, "Why am I doing kindergarten work?" Right. Because the teacher, the special ed teacher whose class he was spending some time in was just giving them board books to read and, you know, um, not challenging them at all. And, you know, part of my advocacy was I've got to get my son out of this classroom. But it was also about contacting the administration and the central administration, the superintendent and saying, look, you need to do something about what's happening to kids who are being warehoused in this classroom where they're not learning anything. Right. And so the advocacy became more about what well, became both what can I do for my son, but also what can I do to deal help deal with this with this issue of people not getting any kind of educational opportunity at all. And so that's, you know, definitely um, an important piece of how people need to be advocating and a orientation that is, you know, my kids should not be getting a, a special kind of treatment. My kids should be treated well, but other other kids should be as well.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, is it that interest convergence, or is it how do we start shifting to think as a community instead of because a lot of times, right, white parents aren't going to encounter situations where they feel their child's not being treated fairly. So how how do we shift from that
1: mindset? I wonder. In the writing of the second edition of this book, we ended up talking to, um, not in any kind of systematic way, but we ended up being in and around Riverview and spending time with some different Black parents. And one of the things they talked about, it's one of the interesting ways, subtle ways that racism works these days, is that you often don't know. How your experience is different, and unless you have um, some accidental even almost or close proximity to somebody else whose you know, experience is different. And this included both a couple of parents who talked about finally having a teacher who saw their kid and advocated for their kid. And um, suddenly they were like, oh, this is what white families are getting most of the time. This is this is what this looks like, right? And in the same way, I think you're raising an interesting issue about, like, how do you get white parents to begin to think about the, to see the kind of privileged access, the kind of privileged experience their kids are having, because, you know, it is it is sometimes hard to see how, when privilege works. You don't see the absence of um, barriers. You don't recognize that your kid is, your kid's positive experience is not is not happening for everyone, right? It's not a question of
0: if racism is at work, but how. One of the privileges of being white is not having to ask that question. White people can continue to think that racism is about other people, about bad people doing bad things, not good folks like us. This privilege helps white people avoid looking at how we may be supporting a racist system
1: despite our good intentions. So much about the idea about interest convergence has to do with how you construct your interests. Right. And one of the things that's interesting for folks like us who have a kind of materialist understanding of race and racism is that part of, you know, people are acting in, you know, we used to think when people are acting racist or having racist ideas that they were somehow being irrational, that they, you know, they were just uneducated somehow or didn't understand. And then, you know, this kind of way of framing things and this is you know people in fact are acting rationally they're they're protecting their interests right that that the way things are set up currently benefits them and so that's why they're advocating to protect it but i think what has happened over the last 4 or 5 years is beginning is people beginning to think about like what kind of world do i want to live in right and do i want to live in a world where where it continues to be true that race has such a large impact on people 's ability to live safely in the world to to have their full potential realized all those kinds of things and I think there there is a way in which we all have multiple identities and that um, that 's what we were talking about earlier about I think a certain amount of level of engagement and activism we 've seen on the part of families that we hadn 't seen you know even 10 years ago has been about people starting to think about I don't I don't really want to live in a in a world where certain kinds of racial violence are just common and and accepted and that sort of thing. So I think there isn't a kind of appeal to a larger sense of a collective and a, a sense of justice that is really powerful. Brian Stevenson talks about this all the time and I think in a way that I can't do nearly as as effectively, but there is a way in which justice is better for all of us, right? That that it's our full humanity is realized in a context in which things are operating in just ways, our capacity to uh, show up for each other fully, all those kinds of things. And I think to the extent that people can get away from their um, immediate proximate interests, um, it helps. I will say there's some institutional barriers to all this. When we Another thing that happened when we were first talking about some of the findings from the book is talking about it in front of a this is when I was teaching at Emory University, and the Dean of the college was there. and he said, "You know, I think I feel implicated in this." And he wasn't saying it in a defensive way, but he said, "You know, we reward all this behavior on behalf of parents. you know we we give extra points for um, grades. we you know, all this kind of, stuff that's going on that you're talking about that so clearly to me is, uh, is replicating racial inequity is, is we're rewarding it. And I, and I said, that's true. So, you know, so I think there, you know, there's, there's, I think both a kind of mindset instead of commitment to change. And then I think we all need to think about the institutions that we're a part of and how they are complicit in the kind of ongoingness of, of racial inequality.
2: I mean, if you're thinking about race and education, the only way that educational change has happened is through in a lot of ways, is through collective action and mobilization, right? So the fact that we're having discussions about the school to prison pipeline, for example, and, you know, moving toward restorative justice practices and, you know, removing police from, from schools is really rooted in the movement to first of all, identify this process started by Black parents in the South. Uh, Mark Warren's book, Willful Defiance, talks about this. You know, the, the language that we're using now about school discipline and the school to prison pipeline and the implications of zero tolerance policies, a lot of that has its roots in social movement activity um, started by black, black parents. So I think it's really important to remember that, you know, it's not just people's opinions changing But it's also sort of the mobilization, collective action, Black Lives Matter, um, the racial justice movements that have happened over time that create the conditions under which people are in some ways forced to respond, even if temporarily, (laughs) to make change happen. So I think there are multiple levers of change, and uh, that's one that we often don't highlight, um, but I think it's, it's really important.
0: And I think, Amanda, I just this is what I keep trying to come back to is racism hurts everybody. And that though you think your kid is having this advantage, you're actually putting them at a disadvantage in this other way, right?
1: Yeah. I, I, I have to admit, like there's ways in which I both think that's completely true and also it's a hard position to sell. I mean, I think it's true in that I really deeply believe that. The pervasive system of racism and white supremacy in our country has violated all of our humanity. And I deeply believe that we have lost so much amazing potential um, in this country because we have essentially not only not committed to helping every kid realize their full ability, you know, in the world, but also because we've done so much harm to people. And I, I I believe all of those things are true. And I, you know, I believe what Heather McGee wrote about, it, you know, you can also think about like, we don't have good healthcare systems in this country because of racism. Our commitments, our ability to have a strong safety net has been historically undermined because we weren't committed to taking care of everybody. And that is largely because of racism. Maybe, maybe what I, I feel like we need to say is that, you know, racism really does harm everybody. And we have to always put the second part of that sentence there and, and is devastating for some. Is there anything I didn't ask you that
0: you wanna say?
1: Well, you know, I was just thinking about, you know, this the, the name of the podcast, Teaching While White, had me thinking a little bit, too, about something John was saying earlier about folks inside the school. Um, and I will say there are lots of ways in which white teachers who, you know, it's not only kids who are getting tracked, right? So there's, you know, some evidence about teacher tracking along the way, too. And there is um, lots of ways that white teachers... Um, not all of them, you know, there's like, but can really get in the way. And there was a district I was in recently where the superintendent was just beginning to acknowledge that the way that they assigned kids to the gifted and talented programs was really educationally indefensible and had, had made a very small gesture of sorts, kind of wanting to look at it closely. And teachers who were involved in teaching that program kind of immediately reached out to parents and got them all activated and stirred up around it and and it just ended up you know creating a distraction for a year and a half but there are so many layers of you know we we sometimes people give us a hard time about the book calling despite the best intentions because it can often feel like not everybody actually does have good intentions in schools but you know our 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 main point was that you know of course intentions are just a starting point, you know, there needs to be a lot of action. But, you know, we've been talking a lot about how parents construct their interests narrowly. And I think there are still a lot of white teachers and administrators who are remarkably unreflexive about the impact they're having in the world. And it's hard to see.
2: Yeah. I I think the only other thing that I would add is, you know, there's a thinking about the broader context of all of this And we can think about it in in terms of sort of, you know, the sort of macroeconomic reality of, you know, sort of the expanding inequalities, social class inequalities that exist that seem to be getting worse and that people are, you know, have been for the last, you know, 30 years or so feeling or, or longer, really feeling like, you know, it's harder and harder to pass on their social status to their kids. And this you know cuts across race to, um, to a large extent. And so there is this pressure that people feel that I think leads them to construct their interests even more narrowly. Like, if I don't do these things, my kid is not going to have the same kind of life that, that I had, right? Because there are just fewer and fewer opportunities to maintain that kind of life. So, it oftentimes focuses the energy on getting kids into a handful of schools that people think will ensure generational mobility and sustaining of, of social status across generations. So, you know, the fact that we don't have a safety net <laughs> that's strong, the fact that we don't have a good healthcare system, the fact that lots of people can't afford to live in the communities where they work. That intensifies these racial patterns um, as well um, and intensifies the ways in which people try to hoard educational opportunity because they want to monopolize that little set of resources that's going to hopefully allow them to, to maintain status. So that's a, a piece of this that I think is often is, is important to um, to keep in mind. And, you know, people could put their energy into changing those systems and structures so that everybody can live a better life, or at least if we're thinking just domestically, because there's a whole international component to this and empire and exploitation and global <laughs> domination. But you know, if, if you wanna think about the local context, there is a reality that you know people could spend their time advocating for more racial justice, more economic justice, more gender-based justice, and that would lead to less of a need to think you have to go to Harvard to have a decent future.
0: That was Amanda Lewis and John Diamond, authors of Despite the Best Intentions. A second edition of their book is coming out soon. John Diamond is a professor of sociology and education policy in the Department of Sociology in the Annenberg Institute for Social Reform at Brown University. Amanda Lewis is the director at the Institute for Research on Race and Public Policy and College of Liberal Arts and Sciences, and Distinguished Professor of Black Studies and Sociology at the University of Illinois at Chicago. There are loud parent voices across the United States who oppose accurate history and push to ban books they don't agree with. These efforts are well-funded and well-organized. To fight back against this movement, we need white parents who are just as loud and just as organized. As John Diamond says, parents of color have been leading the charge for justice and equity for generations. White folks need to follow their lead. Silence is not neutral and silence is complicity. We must declare all children are gifted and talented, and all children deserve an education that serves their talents and their brilliance. Our next episode will take a deep dive into this topic of ability tracking. We'll hear from teachers and students who piloted a program to detrack their math program at their middle school. Today's episode was underwritten by the Eastern Education Resource Collaborative. Stephen Smith is our producer. And I am Jenna chandler Ward, And this is Teaching Wild White. If you liked today's episode, please spread the word. And also give us a rating in your podcast app. It really helps to get the word out about the work we're doing. And thanks for listening.